Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I'm Graham Davis, the digital editor of Investors Chronicle. Joining me today, I have Harriet Russell, our retail correspondent. Hello, Harriet. Hi, Graham. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Good. And also, we have Megan Boxall in the studio, our technology and healthcare correspondent. How are you, Megan? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Graham. Good. Now, Megan, you've covered the story that, that opens up our news section this week. It's a story we have talked about quite a lot recently, which is Facebook. But it took an interesting turn this week. Mark Zuckerberg, the chief executive of Facebook and founder, obviously, was up in front of Congress this week. Now, he got rid of the the grey hoodie, put on a shirt and tie. Did he put on a good show? Yes, he did. Uh, The market certainly seemed to think so. Facebook's shares have been up in the last couple of days, having had a really shocking few weeks, as we've, as you say, we've talked about that quite a lot. Hmm. He's in front of Congress and the Senate answering questions about the recent Cambridge Analytica scandal that this political consultancy firm in the UK has mined the data of about 87 million Facebook users. It's it's obviously a massive story and the reason it's so big is it has drawn up all of these potential implications for the future of data regulation, particularly in the US. So that is what Mark Zuckerberg was explaining and did they, did they drag him over the coals over this? Well, not really. I mean, some of it was a little bit embarrassing, to be honest. <laughs> and we've the, some quotes from some senators who were well, sucking up to him a little bit. We've got, you're a great example of the great American entrepreneur. That's not dragging him across the coals, but no. he did do a, a good job in pacifying investors who've been very concerned about how Facebook's going to make money if data gets tied to regulation. But he didn't really confirm anything there was no definite this is going to happen this isn't going to happen yeah i mean he he said he was open to regulation but that was as far as he went yeah open to regulation he didn't shut the door on a paid version of facebook either but every time there was a difficult question he just said we'll get people to look into it Hmm. there was nothing definite but but for now that's going to have to do it's done enough for shareholders yeah exactly but i don't think this story is over yet at all i think facebook is still an incredibly risky stock to be in because because of all this talk about what's going to happen in the future where the data regulation is going and because facebook is so reliant on using other people's data to make money if there is any sort of clampdown on on how it can do that it's going to be really bad for its profits and also, you know, there, there is no guarantee against future leaks either. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, And they're saying they're doing all they can. And I'm, I've got no doubt they are. But there's only so much you can do when hackers are are incredibly effective. I was very surprised when I read your piece here. The fact that he's actually even considering a paid-for version of Facebook. I mean, this it's got to however many billion people using it by being free. I mean... That's that's a complete change in their business model, isn't it? Yeah, but what's quite an interesting point in that is that there are 2 billion Facebook users at the moment. That has grown from nothing in 10 years. That pace of growth cannot be sustained. Mm. So actually the fact that then it may be time anyway to have a bit of a rejig of what the business plan is, it might not be a bad thing for the long-term future of Facebook to have a more traditional business model where the customer pays with money rather than with their data. Fair point, but straw poll, I wouldn't pay for it, would you? Oh, no, absolutely not. Right? No. There we go. There we go. (laughs) But if Facebook owns Instagram and WhatsApp, and if they bundled the package and said I had to sort of, you know, pay to access all three of those platforms, I'm not ashamed to admit that most of my family and personal life communications happens via WhatsApp. So I would consider that. Okay, so it it could be viable going forward. 
But for now, job done by Mr Zuckerberg. At the moment, yeah, for, for this week, but who knows what next week is going to bring. I've got to ask this question because this is something that came up last year uh, around the presidential election. He's had a shirt and tie on this week. He's been in Congress. Did he look presidential? Oh, no. <laughs> he barely ironed his shirt. I actually said, and it's really interesting because there are a lot of people who've commented on the fact that you never see Mark Zuckerberg in a shirt and tie. Exactly. <laughs> and he did look uncomfortable in it. Someone said actually that he looked like he'd been uh, hauled in to do jury service unwittingly. So Zuckerberg 2020 off the cards for now. I don't think so. Depends how many more swing states he visits in the meantime. I know, he's been doing this thing where he's been getting yeah. connecting with his people, hasn't he? Yeah, not not to promote a competitor paper, but the Sunday Times did a really interesting investigation around that. And he, he has been travelling and, and meeting with the people, so to speak. So, mm. yeah. Anyway, let's move on quickly to the biggest story in the UK this week, which was Tesco. Is Tesco back? <laughs> well, the dividend certainly is. Um, Sales are over a billion quid. Yeah, and back. and profits, and um, it's uh, yeah, it's been it's been an amazing return to form. Really, it hasn't been fast, which I think a lot of people now appreciate. Obviously, they had their big accounting scandal in 2014, mm-hmm. which really decimated the share price. They had a big clean out of top management. Some of those management are still embroiled in a in a legal battle. So it really is a credit to Dave Lewis how he's been able to put that sort of firmly in the rearview mirror. And of course, in the last 12 months, which were the numbers we reported on yesterday, they've also been completing this mega merger with with wholesaler Booker. So they've had their hands full in both senses. And I think the market at the time was very suspicious that the Booker deal would sort of take management's eye off the ball. And yesterday confirmed that that truly wasn't the case. So this is a this drastic Dave Lewis has he's you know he's he's cemented his reputation surely with this turnaround performance. He's done very well, and the market should uh, should applaud him for it. And of course, his history at Unilever came to the fore last year as well, when he was able to really sort of beat them down mm. in terms of trying to write, uh, raise prices on the supply side. Now they've got Booker, they've got even more power in that respect. So they really do um, have control over the whole sort of vertical chain there from sort of warehouse to to shelf. And they've also got an increasing foothold in convenience. So it really is turning into a mega conglomerate as far as grocery in the, in the UK is concerned. So it'll be interesting to see where, where the company goes next. So the super tanker has, has turned around. I mean, this, this performance is on paper very good. Obviously... Mr. Lewis and his management team have been given the credit for slashing costs, cleaving off businesses they didn't want, the restaurants and the coffee shops and that sort of thing. But recently, you know, recently we have seen food price inflation and across the board, the supermarkets have benefited from that. So how much of this is good timing in terms of the circumstances in the sector and how much of it is down to genuine self-help? Yeah, I mean, they're not mutually exclusive at all. The two things have really worked well together. Yeah, they're in a favourable environment. That can't be denied. Um, Grocery has had um, a really good year, a really good almost two years, actually, since, since the referendum and since the sterling adjustments. So, yeah, they've operated the last two years of their recovery in a very helpful environment. But, you know, that's not... That's not their fault. It doesn't shouldn't take anything away from their their efforts. You know, a lot of the drastic sort of impairment charges and things that were taken in the first two years were really sort of hard for investors to swallow. They had to wait a long time. They had to scrap dividends. It was it was bleak. And now everything hopefully is sort of in place for the next chapter. So have they beaten off the discounters? Yeah, I mean, that was a big theme yesterday as well, was that these numbers confirmed that they have seen a lot of trade down, given that obviously 
inflation is rising, that has put pressure on household budgets. And they've managed to capture a lot of those customers from perhaps the Waitrose or even the Sainsbury's crowd coming down to Tesco. But they haven't lost them as far as going down to Lidl and and Aldi. Um, And Lidl and Aldi are going through a different phase of their growth cycle too, obviously not listed companies so that you can't necessarily compare like for like. But they are facing the choice of whether to make sort of more investments in their stores and stuff as well so it's not like they're immune from from any particular challenge it's just a it's a market share equation but actually tesco's market share has been improving in the last few years as well so it, you know it remains britain's largest supermarket hmm. so market shares up margin he's got some exacting targets on margins but he's he's getting there he's getting there yet yeah. we're, we're still out a couple of years on on those targets so we'll wait and see but you know booker has great margins too so it'll depend actually it'll be interesting to see how they account for the two businesses going forward the the merger only completed post year end so they weren't really included in in these numbers the deal was just referred to but whether they sort of fully amalgamate those figures keep them completely separate um similar to what sainsbury's did with argos right they uh, kept those numbers separate for a long time and then decided it made made sense to amalgamate them. Um, Tesco might see it differently. So, um, but you know, they've they've got not only a great business in Booker, but they've got some great management as well um, with Charles Wilson coming on board. So, I have no doubt that there will be further sort of good news to come. Last year, they pushed hard for this Booker deal, and you know, there was there was questions over competition concerns. Could it be described as a game changer? Is it big enough? Oh yeah, for sure. I think that was what sparked the CMA investigation in the first place was that it was going to change the shape of the industry so dramatically. Not really ever before have we had a company that has control over the entire vertical in the way that Tesco Booker now does. Um, So yeah, it's definitely a game changer. Um, It'll be interesting to see whether any of their competitors' concerns um, come true and the CMA sort of has to eat humble pie and admit that it missed something when the when the deal was given the green light, there are a lot of objectors to that. So uh, we'll see what happens. But for my mind, they've got the clearance from the CMA. They've got some really good managers in place. And the quality of Booker as a business should only help Tesco in its pursuit to elevate its business beyond 2014. It's a very, very interesting deal and interesting times. Now, you have gone positive on Tesco now. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one because for a lot of that time, I said... I had no doubt that the recovery would materialise. As we've mentioned, Dave Lewis's plan was always fairly clear and his actions were pretty drastic. So I felt like it was what was necessary. Having said that, the shares valuation largely reflected that recovery potential for most of those years. It was sort of trading in excess of 20 times forward earnings, which for a UK supermarket was kind of ludicrous. And it's why we sort of preferred the the idea of a, of a Sainsbury's as sort of this, you know, loyal champion down down the bottom end of the valuation scale. But the Tesco shares haven't necessarily had the huge momentum that, that they've seen. I think there were, as I said, a lot of concerns over the, the Booker deal and what would happen on that front. And as such, the rating has come down. So we're down now to about 15 times forward earnings, which for investors who kind of missed the last recovery surge, this this could be a good time to get in before before the new, new chapter begins. And it's a dividend payer as well again now. So happy days for Tesco shareholders. Sticking with retail, we had some ONS uh, data out this week. 
what were the signs coming out of that? Yeah, it was interesting. It was uh, March data and it was much better than people were expecting. Um, I think I said in a piece before Christmas that the retail data would be pretty grim around this mm. time. I wasn't far off the mark. Uh, the data in January and February was pretty grim. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that sort of traditional kind of ja- January sales boom has now been sort of pulled forward by the introduction of things like Black Friday. Um, so the industry is kind of going through a bit of a shift in how the numbers work. But actually, March was much better. And, and of course, we had a, a bit of adverse weather, which people were nervous about, and it didn't seem to affect things too drastically. We're still waiting on footfall data from the BRC, which I think is a much more interesting indication, because what that really tells you is how the high street is faring. And yep. that is the big concern. The thing with the ONS data is it's not great at splitting out online versus um, high street. It sometimes puts a little line in, but it's much better at actually dividing sort of sales by product category instead. Okay. So once the BRC data is with us, then we can we can tell maybe a bit more about how that how the high street is is actually faring because one of the the points in the ns data was that grocery was strong against general merchandise yeah i mean that's been a trend for you know almost a year if not longer because of inflation and the grocery sector had been through years of dogged dogged price deflation Mm. real price war that had really been the undoing of so many of the big supermarkets and uh, and that's not the case anymore. So they, they've enjoyed a little rally on that front, whereas obviously the rest of the sector is still a complete slave to online. So, you know, you're, you're facing price cuts from a multitude of sources, not least from Amazon. So constantly having to fight, even though we're in an inflationary environment, you're still having to fight, you know, the online bargain. It's interesting that weather didn't uh, necessarily hamper overall retail sales because normally it's the first thing the retailers yeah. jump on, isn't it? It really and the is. Weather has been grim, hasn't it? It really has been grim. Um, but as I said, those ONS figures mm. tend to conflate online as well. So yeah. the idea is that people wouldn't necessarily have had to leave the house in order to shop or spend money. There was a bit of concern that even if online spend had been sort of fairly resilient, that deliveries and things would have taken a bit of a beating. However, um, Danelm is a good example. They reported um, a third quarter statement this morning and there doesn't seem to have been much disruption from their end either in terms of getting those orders out. Um, They're increasingly an online retailer. So it was uh, it was part of the reason that the shares were up 12 percent today just on a basic third quarter. So Donelm is, is performing well. I mean, it's not necessarily a category you would you would because they they do homewares and and that sort of thing. It's not necessarily a category you would imagine to be booming at the moment. Well, I actually took a punt on them last year and and advised people buy the shares. We've currently got them in in a neutral hold because that didn't really pan out. But my argument at the time was that you would actually expect Donelm to do well in this kind of pressured environment in terms of real income because they get a trade down effect from the likes of John Lewis, mm. which has done terribly. So you would expect to see those numbers coming into Donelm. What what happened and what sort of threw that advice out the window was that they decided to do this acquisition of world stores, which has turned out to be a bit of a dog. Um, the losses have escalated beyond their expectations and they've had to do a lot more work to bring that in line. But, you know, they made some positive noises around that this morning as well, saying those losses are minimising and that they'd seen this kind of very positive third quarter in terms of underlying trading. So, yeah, the market took that well. Uh, there's some interesting news just this morning, which isn't in the magazine as well from the retail sector. We had a, a little flurry of, of, of trading statements, most notably from from WH Smiths uh, and Mothercare. But we also had a very interesting statement out of Carpet Right. Now, WH Smiths 
we can touch upon that really briefly they're still doing okay yeah it's always a game of two halves for wh miss mm. it was actually their interim results this morning and uh, it's the same old story which is um they have a travel business and a high street business the high street business struggles the travel business is flourishing and you hope that travel flourishes enough to offset high street and it sort of did everything's pretty much flat at yeah. this point and they're hoping that if they claw back um five million worth of cost savings i mean if john human was here he'd say wh miss is the best cost cutter in the business and it really is um they do very drastic things and if they can claw back that much in cost savings by the end of the year then things should should sort of end up in a fairly palatable place but uh for the time being it's kind of a a nothing story other than um high street obviously looked as as bad as ever i mean hats off to to wh smith's management because over years and years and years now they have managed a, a business that has been in structural decline yeah, absolutely. And so it's because well. they identified the opportunity of that decline. It's a bit of a muddled <laughs> sentence. But <laughs> what I mean by that is they thought, well, if the high street is is declining, there, there still is a market for people who are on the go. They want snacks, they want magazines, they want stationery, they want bottles of water. Where does that happen? It happens in travel outlets. Mm. It happens in rail stations. It happens in airports and bus stations. And that's where we have to focus our energy. And they've also gone abroad. I mean, that's the other thing that people don't realise about WH Smith is that they have a fairly sort of thriving international business as well. I saw, I just read they're in 48 countries. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. I never knew that. Now, one company that hasn't managed a structural decline as well, as we know over many years of covering them, is Carpet Right. Yeah. But... (laughs) I just read their statement before I came down here and it, you know, I'm not surprised it's got to this stage. It's a surprise they've lasted this long, but they've come up with a pretty drastic plan, but you're quite impressed with it. I mean, if they pull it off, mm. I will be super impressed. What they've basically done is um, they have decided to go into what's known as a company voluntary arrangement or a CVA, which typically would be the first stage of an insolvency process and now. would, yeah, would, would send alarm bells ringing through, through the investors. But, um, but in this case, they say they're going to try and work the system to their advantage because by doing that, by placing yourself in that arrangement, you can go to your creditors and to your landlords and sort of renegotiate terms a lot easier. Um, carpet. They, they're going to do this across. 200 or more stores aren't they so the main reason they want to do it is to get out of these onerous property leases carpet right was one of the companies that fared worst in our recent feature on these property leases that are just absolutely drowning traditional retailers just can't keep keep up with the costs basically and yeah they've identified 205 underperforming stores they're going to now thanks to the cva be able to just close 92 straight away and then the remaining 113 they'll be able to renegotiate terms on so it really is a drastic plan they've still got to vote on it and arrange it with creditors and sort of get everyone on the same page um and if they can raise another 60 million through an equity placing at the end of may then everything should be on an even keel um i'm not saying that people should be rushing out and buying the shares and it'll be interesting because with a share placing obviously that's that's done through institutions so they'll have to go to the institutions and ask them for support. And if it's a conviviality situation where the institutions basically tell them to uh, get out, then things might change again and it might seem that the CVA isn't enough. They obviously have a short-term funding issue as well. So we'll we'll see how it pans out. But we've got no sort of real advice on carpet, right? We're just sort of like enjoying the ride from the sidelines. Mm. How many stores, just out of interest, how many stores will they actually have left? I don't know. I mean, it's 95 or 90, 90 odd closures seems like a huge amount. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is quite drastic. What 
what is quite an interesting indication of carpet rights trajectory, uh, myself and Emma Powell, our news editor, were looking at this this morning, was that um, three years ago, carpet right shares were worth near 300p. And today they're worth about 17. So they have taken an absolute beating. And the company is now worth something like 30 million in terms of market cap off the top of my head. I mean, that's nothing compared to what it used to be. So it really is rock bottom. But if they can turn this around... um, you know, it'll be an incredible use of, of a CVA. Mm, indeed. So that's, it remains to be seen whether it's a stay of execution or not. Another company which reported uh, trading this morning but didn't give an update on its own potentially perilous funding position is Mothercare. Yeah, I mean, we wrote about Carpet Right and Mothercare in a joint story not too long ago because Mothercare had also um, suffered several share price falls in a number of consecutive days because there were rumours swirling that they were going to file for administration. And they haven't, is the point. They've been um, basically able to enter negotiations with their financing partners. Um, This is literally as specific as they've been. I'm using their words. And so far, we haven't had any real further update. The only other drastic thing that's happened there is that Mark Newton-Jones, the chief executive, has left and been immediately replaced by David Wood. Interestingly, he has more of a background in grocery. He was at Tesco and then went to the US and sort of turned Kmart around. And he's seen as a bit of a sort of rescue chief executive. So he's been brought in. And he's only made two statements. He was only appointed a few weeks ago and at that point he said that his priority was to get mother care back on even footing and today he's basically used those exact words again so quite what his plan actually is no one really knows hence why the mother care shares didn't really move today whereas mm. carpet right for instance fell um again so um until an, a strategy really becomes clear, there's not a huge amount of inspiration around mother care. And, and the numbers that they released this morning, the Q4s, were just really, really terrible. Um, for me, actually, having mentioned those Q4 figures, it becomes very obvious what they need to do, which is a bit of an M&S strategy. Steve Rowe over there has completely chopped off the international arm of M&S and completely killed it. And if I were if I were in Mothercare's position, I would think about doing that too, because it's really surprisingly the international business which is absolutely killing them. Things aren't great in the UK either. Online is better; it's okay, but I, I mean, really, that's probably the future for a business like Mothercare, isn't it? Because it they, really they should be. They can't compete. Typically, when I used to speak to Martin Newton Jones at the time of results or whenever, he used to say that online was an was a sort of really difficult avenue for them mainly because a lot of their sort of competitors had come into the market recently are online pure plays and of course they're not they've got this legacy property issue which you know we've heard it all before but what he was saying was there are there are pieces of equipment um to do with their particular sort of niche in in children's wear and children's equipment things like buggies Hmm. which you don't necessarily want to buy online because you don't know how they work, you don't know how big they are, blah, blah, blah. So you want to go in store and look at them and try them out, see if you can collapse them down successfully without 100 other people. They're very expensive but, as well. It's like buying a car. Yeah, well, so here's the problem, is that Mothercare, unfortunately, was experiencing this issue where people would go into Mothercare, pick the brains of the customer um, assistants, see, see the demo, test drive it, put the doll in there or whatever, or their real baby, and then go home and order it online for a fraction of the price. And... So Mark Newton-Jones was saying, this is the problem that we have and this is why we need to really train our sales associates to convert the 
the sale right there and then. And I think at the time, I even suggested to him that they might do a John Lewis um, never knowingly undersold kind of policy, but I don't think he took my advice. Because <laughs> <laughs> as far as I can tell, all they really came up with was equipping their sales associates with iPads in right. the hope of trying to convert the sale there and then and get it delivered to their address next day. And I just don't think it worked. And millennial tastes have changed. They're not really interested in basic. If they want basic, they'll go on to Amazon or Ocado mm. and order it in bulk. And if they want something a bit more special, as it, if it's a gift, if it's Christmas, they're not going to go to Mothercare. So they really were trapped between a rock and a hard place and they just didn't know where they sat in the market anymore. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if Dave Wood can sort of re reposition that at all. He's got a big challenge on his hands. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Harry. I think we've done enough on retail there, but it's, it's been a very interesting week. I just wanted to move on to, to one other news piece, um, which uh, is from the pharmaceutical sector, which is why we've got Megan here. Megan, interestingly enough, BTG, which is a, you know, a, Big old company here, two and a half billion pound market cap, blundered twice now. Not great for investors, this, is it? I think it's made it worse that this is the second time that they've had a very big problem with one of their products. This time it's a respiratory drug. Well, not a drug, it's a respiratory product. It's their coils which go into the lungs and help yeah. emphysema patients breathe. A bit like a stent or something, isn't yeah. it? That just yeah. expands things. Okay. Yeah. And what they claim and what BTG's whole purpose is as a company is improving healthcare, lowering the costs of healthcare, being more efficient. And they're very good at that. And they target these products which they think are going to do that. This product, Numarex being one of them. But unfortunately, they don't seem to be very good at marketing those products or, or getting them ready for commercialization because NewRx is now not going to perform as well as management previously expected it was going to perform, which means they've taken a £150 million impairment on the product and they're now going to have to invest more in research and development in the next few years and they're not going to make any money on it in the next at least two years, which is really disappointing because a lot of people, when BTG bought Numarex thought, oh, this is another really big revenue driver, but it turns out it's not that at the moment. That's a really chunky hit this year, and and obviously then you've got this two year potential lag as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and as you, as you say in your piece, it's the second time they've done this. So. Yeah, it, it's a different problem. The first yeah. problem was with a different drug called Varathena, which is a varicose veins treatment. They tried to launch it in the US, but again, they weren't prepared for the challenges of the market there. Um, and the commercialization opportunity. They didn't get the right insurance codes. Obviously, in America, most healthcare is paid for via insurers. You need to have codes which allow the insurer to pay back the doctor who prescribes it to the patient. And they didn't have the right medical code. Is which, that not a fairly basic mistake? I mean, yeah, you'd have thought so. I, I, I don't sell drugs in America. I don't know how obvious it is. But you'd have thought if you are a relatively large pharmaceutical company selling drugs into the biggest pharmaceutical market in the world, you'd, you'd make sure that your product was ready to go before you tried to launch it there. And it didn't do it that time. And now, again, this latest product is um, located in France and Germany rather than the US. But again, they've taken a product to market without being 100% sure that it's ready to go. And how were they even allowed to get it to market if it's still... You say in the piece it still needs further clinical trials. Well, it's not that it isn't approved. It is a 
It's a regulated drug. It's mm. shown in clinical trials that it, it does the job. But it's whether it does the job as well as what the current product is at a better cost. Why would a doctor in France or Germany or anywhere prescribe this relatively expensive, maybe sound, sounds a bit odd treatment when at the moment you can give an emphysema patient a very well-renowned medicine and send them on their way that they're not going to change their their views based on data which isn't isn't that comprehensive so rather than forgetting about the drug the treatment altogether which they think there's got great potential and and they are they're good at picking out these treatments with great potential just in this case they haven't quite shown it yet I mean, I guess the problem here is, is, is reputationally, the, the, the business has, it stakes its reputation on buying these products and taking them through its commercialisation. And it's, there's, there's two fairly chunky black marks on the record now. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's why I moved it to hold because, t- took it off the bite it because twice, you can't be making that kind of mistake twice. And management and the company have said that there aren't any more products which are in the same stage of, stage of development, which could this could happen to as again but you wouldn't have thought it would happen twice. You wouldn't have really even thought it would happen once. So it's it's just not a very good sign. And there's there's other challenges on the horizon, which I don't think investors are going to respond very well to unless management prove that they are a bit more capable than they have been in the last couple of years. And it's actually on a pretty high rating still as well. It's not it's not a cheap company. They can't afford to be making big management mistakes. Uh, so how did shareholders react this week? Well, they reacted incredibly badly at first. The share price was down about 15% on the day the announcement came out. But it has since then recovered a bit. I think a lot of analysts went straight out with notes saying this is the massive overreaction. It's one product in a in a large suite of products, which they, they do have a lot of very, very impressive drugs. And Varathena, the, the other one that used to have a problem, is gaining a bit more momentum in the US. Now it's been assigned new insurance codes. So it's not all bad at BTG. And I do think investors may have realised that in the days that followed the announcement. But there's still risks, which I no longer think the the quite hefty price to earnings valuation deserves. OK, so you've gone, you've gone neutral on that. Yeah. Now. Thanks for that. Uh, that pretty much covers what we're going to talk about for, for today. Uh, the magazine has plenty more in it as, as ever. Uh, the main feature this week is from Robert Merrifield, a former fund manager, who lays out uh, his simple rule for avoiding major share price falls, particularly when you're investing in high-yield companies. Our secondary feature comes from another former city fund manager, John Rosier, who is our private investor. He writes private investor diary once a month for us. His portfolio has taken a bit of a hit uh, in the past month or so, but according to his write-up this month, he has cut out the laggards in his portfolio, including conviviality, and found some interesting new investments for his portfolio. Our third feature comes from Chris Dillow, who updates his no-thought portfolios. He puts these together on a, on a quarterly basis based on momentum. Interestingly enough, both his momentum and his defensive portfolios haven't done so well in the first quarter of this year. But Chris has updated and, and given reasons why he, he thinks that might be and, and given his latest selection. Our personal finance team will be producing their personal finance podcast tomorrow when they will talk about their uh, main stories in the magazine. Thank you for listening. Tune in again next week.